invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, the first chapter. We continue to make our way through uh, this uh, letter of, uh, of Paul written to folks he's never seen, never met, living in a place that as far as we know he had never been. Uh, and we come to the eighth verse, verses 8 through 15, and let me just... Uh, make a couple of general observations about where we've come thus far. In these first seven verses, Paul is is greeting these folks. He's using a, a fairly standard greeting. When we write letters, we say, dear so-and-so, and at the bottom we say, sincerely, or best wishes, or, you know, whatever at the end. And you don't find out, usually, you don't find out who wrote the letter until you get to the end of the letter. Well, they did it differently back then. The writer identified himself right out of the chute, and Paul has done that, and then he's also identified those to whom he is writing, these Roman Christians. And in between, between the greeting and and the, the formal address to the Roman Christians, he's basically telling us what it is that he's going to talk about in this letter. He's going to talk about the gospel of God. That, it seems to me, is the great theme of this letter. The gospel of God, the gospel that comes from God. It's not a human gospel. Those gospels are no gospel at all. It's a good news, a a glorious announcement that comes from God himself. And it's also the gospel about God. I think it's legitimate to understand it meaning both things. It comes from God and it's about God, the gospel of God. When he comes to these verses, Paul is um, he's becoming very personal. Now, you need to remember this. You need to know that, that Paul's not a guy who sits in an office someplace and writes books of theology. Uh, uh, a lot of times when people come to the book of Romans, they'll, they'll come to it like it's some kind of systematic theology or something, and it isn't. There's a ton of theological truth in it. But Paul is a pastor. He's a human being. His ultimate concern, his final concern is people. That's what he's concerned. He's concerned that these Romans better understand the gospel of God, that they be better grounded in the gospel of God and better understand the implications of the gospel of God for their lives. And he's got some particular agendas. And and we're going to find those agendas one by one as we work our way through this letter. But just understand that he's writing as a real person who cares about real people. He's writing as a pastor. And so we're getting an introduction to Paul the person. We're In these verses, 8 through 15, we're getting some introduction to the things he cares about, his passions, his longings, his desires. Everybody's got passions and longings and desires, and he has some. And what emerges from this, if you will... What emerges from this is a kind of a profile, a kind of a profile of a living faith, a profile of the faith of a living Christian. What are the things that sort of make up that profile? What what does a Christian look like, right? If you could create a portrait of a Christian, what would a Christian look like? Well, we're getting some of the contours of what a Christian looks like as we come to these verses. So with that stuff as background. Let's read verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing 
I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. It seems that Paul is responding to a criticism that he doesn't keep his word. He said he was going to come, he didn't come, and he's going to tell them uh, later in the letter why it is that he didn't come. Thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is God's word to us and for his people in all ages. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And again, we pray that um, as we come to it, um, we would have your spirit as well. For without the work of your spirit, your word will have no power. So cause this marriage to happen of word and spirit so that all of us come under its influence, its life-changing persuasions and power. We pray that you might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm sorry to keep you standing so long. Just be thankful you don't live in the days of Nehemiah when they found the book of the covenant. They stood all day long to read it and hear expositions of it. You got a break this morning. A few things that emerge from this. What, what does a Christian look like? What's the profile of a living faith? Let me suggest that there are four things, and I want to precede these four things with, with a, a, another question and answer. But here are these four things. What are some things, not, this is not an exhaustive list, but what are some things that make up this portrait, the profile of a living faith? What does a Christian look like? Well, you, you can see in this passage, I think, four things. First, a Christian is a person with a world vision. You see that in verse 5 in the introduction, the greeting. Paul says his ministry is for the sake of the nations. But it's here, too, in verse 8. He's thrilled that the faith of the Roman Christians is being heralded in all the world. And that's something he's going to come back to. Uh, then second, a Christian is a person with soul-deep devotion. Soul-deep devotion. You see that in verse 9. He says, uh, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Uh, a soul-deep devotion is what Paul is getting at. We'll see that he's talking about that in a few minutes. And then third, a Christian is a person who prays, verses 9 and 10. A Christian is a person who prays. And then fourth, a Christian is a person, <laughs> I love this, who loves the brethren. Verses 11 and 12, I long to see you. I long to see you. So a Christian is a person who loves the brethren. World vision, soul-deep devotion, prayer, and love of the brethren. Now, the question that I think we should probably ask and touch on at least briefly as we come to these four things is kind of a prior question, and we're going to talk about it next week in even greater detail. But that question is, if this is what a Christian looks like, if you, if you want to see a picture of a Christian, a profile of a Christian, and if this is what a Christian begins to look like, right, 
What is a Christian? Right? What is a Christian? If this is what one looks like as you observe a Christian, as you, as you, um, draw conclusions from what you see about what it is that makes up a Christian, there's something at the core of what a Christian is that we ought to be wrestling with. We ought to be asking the, the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And again, we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more um, next week. But let me just say this much about that. Now, let me put it to you this way. A Christian is someone who has had something happen to him or her. A Christian is someone who has had something happen to him or her. Let me be real straightforward and and blunt and forthright about these things. It is not having a world vision. It is not having a soul-deep devotion. It is not praying It is not loving the brethren that makes a person a Christian. These are things, these are evidences of the fact that a person is a Christian. You understand the difference? Right? These things, if you will, are the fruit of a Christian, what a Christian is. What is a Christian? A Christian, many things that we're going to say about it, but a Christian is someone who has had something done to him or her. A Christian is someone who is changed, someone who is altered, someone who has been taken over, if you will. We talked last week very briefly about this very, very important word in this greeting, this word that is translated Lord in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul referring to Jesus Christ, our kurios, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not king. Jesus Christ is king. What is a Christian? Here's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has come under the influence and control and power of the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone whose life, frankly, I know this, runs counter to all of your thoughts about being independent free will agents. Particularly people whose ideas of freedom are reinforced as we live in a democratic society where we make the choices, some of them good, some of them bad. We do the electing. We put people in positions of power. you got to understand, Christianity is absolutely contrary to all of that, and it is counterintuitive to those who have been trained and raised up to think not of dependence, but to think of independence. Don't you love Frank Sinatra? I did it my way. I mean, look, that's the theme song of the American citizenry. But here's what we're saying a Christian is. A Christian is someone whose independence has been assaulted by the King of glory, one who has been humbled under the mighty hand of God, one whose life has been invaded by the reigning Prince of Righteousness and has come under the reign and control of the reigning Prince of Righteousness and has been altered and changed at the core of his or her being. What's the great illustration of that? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul himself. Now look at the things that he says are his passions and his desires and his loves. He cares about the gospel. 
Look, he used to hate the gospel, right? He wasn't neutral about it. He hated it. He not only hated the gospel, he hated people who believed the gospel. People who followed the gospel. He used to care about things like being circumcised on the eighth day, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee, being blameless before the law being righteous in the sense. If you had seen the Apostle Paul, if you had looked at him, you would have said of the Apostle Paul, there goes a holy man. There goes a righteous man. There goes a godly man. There goes a man who prays. There goes a man who is zealous. And Paul was a hater of God, hater of everything that was dear to to God himself. And here he is now, an advocate of the very things that he hated. You understand where I'm going with this? How do you account for that change? Paul's eating his Cheerios one morning, realizes, oh, I've made a mistake. Yeah, right. I don't think so. I invite you to read the book of Acts. I invite you to read Acts 6, 7, 8, and 9. I invite you to to just read all of that so that you can kind of get the segues in the life of the early church to the appearance of Paul on the stage of human history, how Paul is standing by giving his consent to the martyrdom of Stephen, who was a follower of Christ, and who then in the next chapters is invaded by a foreign power and is knocked from his horse and is humbled under the mighty hand of Christ and is converted by the power of Christ. You say, what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who in the view of the world is off his rocker, nutso, completely out of step with the way the world does things. A Christian is someone whose life has been altered, changed, So that the things he used to hate, he now loves. The things that he used to love, he now, as Paul says in Philippians 3, considers dung and rubbish. What's a Christian? An anomaly. A mystery. A freak. Someone who is altered. You understand? Do do we understand this? It's. I feel like it's awfully important for us to be reminded of this. Okay, if you live in Japan, if you live in Japan, you're probably a Shintoist. And the reason you're a Shintoist is because you're Japanese. And there are an awful lot of folks who think that because I live in America, I'm a Christian. Because the, the Japanese think that way of Christianity. The whole Muslim world thinks that way about Christianity. They equate Christianity with America. But the gospel is a gospel for every race and nation and tribe and tongue. It is not associated with a particular race, color, creed, national origin, or anything else. Christianity, the gospel of Christ, Christians are sui generis. They are a unique genre apart from the whole of the rest of humankind because they've been changed. So... The question I think it's always good for us to be asking ourselves is do I know what I'm, do I know anything of this? Do, do I understand this? Do I see that I've been changed? It's a wonderful little story 
that captures this and then that sort of leads us into this discussion of these four things. It's a story of a little girl who's riding home from church with her father. And she's very quiet in the car as they're driving home. And, and the father is a little perplexed because she's normally very chatty. And he asks her if everything is okay. And she says, everything is fine. And he says, what are you thinking about? And she said, I'm thinking about the sermon this morning. She's six or seven years old. And the, the pastor that morning had preached from John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And the pastor went on to explain that a Christian is someone in whose life Jesus Christ has taken up residence. And so the little girl is kind of perplexed by this, and she asks her father, how big is Jesus? And the father says, he's big. He's very, very big. And the little girl looks up at her father and says, well, then if he comes in, isn't he going to kind of stick out? And the answer is yes, he's going to stick out. And that's what we're looking at as we look at these four things. We're looking at some of the ways in which Jesus, the King of glory, the ruler, the reigner of the universe, who moves into people's lives, who takes over their lives, who takes up residence in their lives, begins to stick out. And the first of those is what Paul describes here in this eighth verse and what he has already talked about in verse 5. A Christian is someone who has a world vision, a vision for the world. Paul does what he does as an apostle. Paul does what he does as a herald of the good news. He does what he does for the sake of the name of Jesus, that's verse 5, and for all the nations, that's also verse 5. He refers to this again in verses 13 and 14. Um, He says that he wants to come to Rome because he wants to reap a harvest among them as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He says he's under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. He's under obligation to all kinds of people living in all places. You see, he has a vision for the world. He has a vision for the nations. And that's why he keeps going. That's why when his work in Asia Minor and all of these cities where he's been to preach the gospel, herald the gospel, he gets done with that work, he's not finished. You'll see in chapter 15 of Romans that he wants to go to Spain and he actually wants to bring the Roman Christians into his vision for the world. You can read that later. Romans 15, he says, I want to come to you so that you can speed me on my way as I go to Spain. See, he wants to gather them up into his vision, the vision that God has given him for the nations, for the world. That's a very strange thing, isn't it? It's a very challenging thing to think about when you when you begin to wrestle with this. Paul's vision for the world. Paul looking outside of himself. Paul looking away from himself. Paul thinking entirely of peoples and groups and tribes and, and cities and villages all across what we now know to be Europe, all across that part of the world. He can't get that out of his head. His constant reflection, his constant thinking, his constant praying is in the direction of the world. Paul is the opposite of what we tend to be, which is very self-referenced. 
right? Don't we tend to be very self-referenced? We t- we're like Kevin Costner in the film Field of Dreams. If you've seen the film Field of Dreams, old movie for old people like me. He builds this baseball diamond in the midst of a cornfield. And strange, bizarre things begin to happen. And near the end of the movie, he says to James Earl Jones, I want to go out there. I want to go out there where all those other people have gone, out there into that cornfield to see the strange things that they've seen. And James Earl Jones says, no, you can't go. You've got to stay here. And then he gets to the bottom line with this thing. He asks James Earl Jones, I want to know. I want to know. What's in it for me? I built this field. I maintained this field. I sacrificed my... What's in it for me? You don't ever hear Paul saying things like that. He's in it for them. He's in it for them. told you this this story, but since some of you haven't heard it, i got to tell it because it's such a great story. It's my my four-year-old daughter in the nursery who's with two other little kids and suddenly one of these, she's 29 now, by the way. The contours of her personality haven't changed dramatically in the last 25 years, but she's in the nursery with these two other kids and suddenly one of these kids yells and screams. So the nursery attendant, the person who's in the nursery, walks over and looks down at my daughter who's playing with a toy and this little boy who's sitting next to her and says, what's the problem? And she looks up and says, I don't know why he's crying. I have what I want. Right? That's, that's how, I mean, we're hardwired in that way, aren't we? to be self-referenced, to want what we want, to ask the question, what's in it for me? But you see, Paul now, because he's been rewired, because he's been captivated by the king of glory, the whole orientation of his life is out there. You've heard, maybe I've shared this with you, this is the great definition of narcissism. You know, Narcissus, the character from Greek mythology who loved gazing at his own appearance in the pool, you know, this still water... It's a great definition of narcissism. Person A has been talking about person A for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Person A says to person B, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Paul's, you know, you see, the nations, it's out there. And that's what Christ begins to do to people. He begins to rewire people so that their orientation is out there. Now, I've got to say this. It makes me so grateful to get a phone call on Friday night and to hear from Peter Catula that the money that you all raised, because you're connected to something outside yourselves, because you have a vision for something outside yourselves, the money that you gave, the money that was sent to Tanzania was used for the purpose for which it was intended, that women could gather together to be trained, to be discipled, so that they in turn could be disciples. I've I've said this. One of the things that attracted me to this church from the very beginning was the outward-facing character of this church expressed in the commitment of this church to support ministries in this community and beyond. I love that about this congregation, and it's right, and it's evidence that Christ has moved in here, he's laid hold of people, he's rewiring us, and he's orienting us away from being narcissistic, which we are by nature, He's rewiring us and reorienting us so that we look out beyond ourselves 
and see what Paul saw, the nations. So much I want for this church to be prospered. I, I want, this is my only, it's a simple prayer. God, please prosper this church. Please prosper this church. Please prosper this church. Why? So that we can be a blessing to others. Not so that we can be a cul-de-sac for the blessing of God, so that we can be a conduit for the blessing of God. That's New Testament religion. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. And we've had a great beginning here. So let's pray for more. Let's pray for more. So that's the first thing. What do you see when you look at Paul? You see a world Christian. We're going to have to race through these things. Third, second thing. See, I skipped over two. Second thing. When you, when you, when you want to see what, what does a Christian look like? What is the profile of a Christian? Here's this next thing. It's in verse 9. God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit. Whom I serve in my spirit. The NIV translate, translates that phrase, whom I serve with my whole heart. That's a, that's a pretty loose paraphrase of the literal words of the, of the language in the text, whom I serve with my whole heart, but it gets at what Paul is getting at in using that phrase, whom I serve with my spirit, with my spirit, in my spirit, by my spirit. Any of those is a possibility. Now, again, to, to, to understand a bit better what it is that Paul is thinking about here, let's remember who Paul was. Let's remember that Paul's preoccupation was external things. I've already alluded to Philippians 3. You can go read Philippians 3, where in verses 4 through 6, he describes his confidence as being in the flesh. His confidence being in the flesh. And then having said that his confidence was in the flesh, he goes on to list all of these things that are features or characteristics of his confidence. What was he confident about? What was he confident in? You know, bottom line, Paul was confident that he was right. He was confident that he was right. He was confident that he had the right pedigree. He was confident that he was exemplary concerning his obedience and performance and things that people could see. Circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. Zealous, so zealous, already said this, so zealous that he opposed the gospel, he hated the gospel, and he hated Christians. That's not too strong a word. He did. Wasn't neutral about these things. He hated the gospel and he hated Christians. Before the law, he was righteous. All of these things are external, observable things, and they are things in which he found his confidence. Now, look, I don't want to pick fights here. I never come here on Sunday mornings to pick fights. But I have to ask you, where is your confidence? Where is your confidence What is it that gives you a sense of well-being in the midst of the world? What is it that gives you a sense of well-being before God? You know, the University of Florida is just going to be hard to live with this year. I mean, there's a thing on the sports page, right? Is Tim Tebow the greatest football player ever to have played college football. Look, 
I don't know. I run into too many University of Florida football fans, I guess. But it just seems like Gators are sort of the be-all and end-all of human existence. And I know people who aren't graduates of the University of Florida, but they live in Florida, and they've always loved the Gators, and they sort of glom onto this thing, and they find their, you know what I'm talking about? They find their identity in this stuff. They get all wrapped up in this stuff. It becomes the most important stuff about them. And not just whether Tim Tebow wins another Heisman, leads his team to another national championship so that the University of Florida is ensconced in some sort of hall of fame, the glory of which will last forever. But you know how this works. People glory in all kinds of external worldly things. And it can be so very subtle. Again, I'm not here to pick fights. But it can be party affiliation. It can be party affiliation. On either side of the aisle. That's what really matters. Because the guys on this side of the aisle are the really good guys and the guys on the other side of the aisle are the really bad guys. It can be theological knowledge. It can be the stuff I have in my head. I talk about these various kinds of Phariseeisms that, that kind of grow up in the church and it breaks my heart. And I, I, you know, again, I'm not here to pick fights. I'm really not. But you can have these sort of theological Phariseeisms. If you have the right stuff in your head, if you know the right things, if you can say the right things, you are the real deal. If you've had the right religious experience, if you've been baptized with the Spirit the second or fifth or eighth or 148th time, if you speak in tongues, if you've had visions, if you dream, you are the real deal. Or if you've got the moral code figured out, if you've got the, the rights and the wrongs and the do's and the don'ts and they're all listed on a card and you carry it in your pocket and you get up every morning and you bust your backside to do the, you, you see, can be the theological, the moralistic, the experiential, all different kinds of Phariseeisms that can grow up. Paul takes pride in none of that. None of that. The whole movement and motion of his ministry is born out of an internal thing. Not these things, none of which is bad necessarily in itself, but any one of which can result in confidence in the flesh. Paul will have none of it. Paul is a changed man. And the whole motion and movement of Paul's ministry is out of a spirit, a heart. That's why I think the NIV gets at something when it translates that phrase from the whole heart. Paul is moved by something, captivated by something, changed by something that goes right to the core of his being, deep within him. He is a prisoner to it, and everything moves out from the inside. See, he's captivated, gripped in the depths of his soul, in the depths of his heart by Jesus Christ. So always, it seems to me, it's good for us to be asking the question, what is it that's driving what's going on with me? What is it that 
that explains what is going on with me. And my prayer for myself and my prayer for you, for this congregation, is that more and more and more, our hearts, our souls, our spirits, the internal realities, the deep realities, the deep aspects of who we are would be captured by the beauty and the loveliness and the glory of Christ so that what sticks out in us is evidence of what has gone on inside us. So that's the second thing. Deep, soulish devotion to Christ. And here's the third prayer. Verse 10. Paul says that always in his prayers, he is asking that somehow by God's will, he may succeed in coming to them. I'll just give you another assignment. I'll encourage you just to read the first couple of paragraphs of each of Paul's letters. Read all 13 of them. It won't take you that long over the course of this next week. Just read the opening verses of each of Paul's letters. And I think you will find that with the exceptions of Galatians and 2 Corinthians, the opening the opening verses of his letters are filled with references to prayer. He's always praying. He's praying very specific things. If you want to go a little bit farther this coming week, you can study the things that Paul prays when he prays for the Ephesians, for the Philippians, for the Colossians, for the Thessalonians, for Timothy, for Titus. You can see what he prays, but just note that he does pray. It is a central feature of Paul's life. It is a central feature of the life of the church. As Eric Alexander put it, prayer is not supplemental. It is fundamental. We don't pray for the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. Prayer is the ministry. So here's just a heads up. As we move into the fall and as we continue to make use of this wonderful gift that God has given us, this wonderful facility, you can expect to see a monthly prayer meeting in the calendar. You can expect to see a monthly prayer meeting, a gathering of the saints at the church in Vero Beach, specifically Christ the King, who will be invited to pray for our community, for our state, for our nation, and for our world. And I haven't talked with Zach and Glenn or anybody else about this, but being against this would be a little bit like being against mom, the flag, and apple pie. So I don't expect any resistance. And if I do find resistance, I'm going to fight back. You can expect to see, as we make use of what God has given us in this gift, a quarterly day of prayer and fasting for ourselves, for this community, and for the nations. And you can expect me to admonish myself and gently, lovingly, politely to admonish you that we be as ready to show up for a prayer meeting as we are ready to show up for a covered dish dinner. That we be as ready to gather to pray as we are ready to gather to eat. Because prayer is a central feature of the life of the church, and it is a part of the profile of the Christian. And let me just remind you of something I've said before. As we gather for prayer, we are partnering with God in his work in the world. That's what we do when we pray. So more and more, not that we aren't, 
Not that we aren't a praying people, but more and more. I want to be a praying pastor, and I want to be surrounded by yoked to praying people. And then fourth, finally, what is this fourth feature of the Christian, of the profile of a Christian, a deep-seated affection, a love for the brethren. Now, that's dicey. That's dicey. It is tough to love sinners, among whom I count myself. (laughs) But Paul loved these people. I long to see you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on that particular verse, makes the observation that, that nowhere in all of Paul's communication in this letter to the Romans, nowhere in this communication does Paul say, I can't wait to get to Rome because I want to see the Colosseum. Nowhere does he say, I, I, want, I, I want to go to Rome because I want to see the emperor. I want to see the sights. No, isn't this amazing? We don't know how many Christians there were in Rome. Rome was the capital of worldly power, the capital of military power, the capital, it was the, it was the economic engine that drove the whole thing. It, it was the center of everything. It was the Washington, D.C., the New York City, the Los Angeles, California, throw them all together, entertainment, finance, politics, throw it all together, it was all in Rome. And what did Paul want to do when he got there? Were there four dozen, eight dozen, 15 dozen Christians in Rome by the time he wrote this letter? Maybe 2,000, 3, 4, who cares? Compared with the number of people living in that city, they were small in number. But Paul wanted to find them. He wanted to find them and he wanted to be with them. And this warrants a sermon all in itself. He wanted to be with them. He longed to see them. He had a deep-seated affection for them. And he understood that when one gets united to Jesus Christ, he gets united to his people, and there is benefit that moves both directions, from Paul to them and from them to Paul. The fellowship of the people of God is a mutually, pay no attention to those cries, (laughs) is a mutually beneficial fellowship. There's some gifts that are seen. There are some gifts that are not seen. All the gifts are needed. All the gifts are necessary. And Paul, the great apostle, is writing to people whose names we don't know, anonymous people, and is saying, I need something from you. You need something from me. I can't wait to be among you so that we can benefit from each other. That's the dynamic. That's the nature. That's the wonder of the church. So what does a Christian look like? One who has been reined in by Jesus Christ, one in whose life Christ has taken up residence, one over whose life Christ rules as Lord and King. These are some of the things. A world vision, vision for the nations, a deep soul devotion, a commitment to prayer, and a love of the brethren. May these things more and more be true of us as the days and weeks and months go by as we gather week by week in this wonderful place. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you, by your spirit, having captivated us, having captured us, having made us your own, would you cause these things more and more to be characteristics of our lives, characteristic of who we are, O God, 
Forgive us at those points where they're not true of us. Help us, change us, mold us, move us, incline us to be more of what it is that you call us to be. Do it by your power. Do it by your grace. Do it so that we might be more like Jesus. Do it so that Jesus might be more evident in and among us and through us out into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May have you stand and we'll sing number 301, concluding hymn.